Turning you back to that reading, just a little earlier, Hebrews chapter 2, please. Um, we've entitled the message, Neglecting Salvation. Neglecting Salvation. Let's just unite our heart. It's more short word of prayer as we come even to the preaching of God's word uh, this night. You pray the Lord will bless your soul and there'll be a word in season uh, even to your heart. Father in heaven, we do thank thee again for uh, Lord being able to be here tonight and to be able to sing these great hymns. And oh God, we, uh, Lord, have a desire to uh, just tell forth the, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that I might come, Lord, and stand in all thy risen power. And Lord, we pray that thou would have thy rightful place, even tonight, not only in the first part of our meeting, but, Lord, in the latter part as well. And we pray that thou would shut out the devil. O oh God, I was prayed even in the prayer meeting, bind the strong man. Lord, we pray thou might spoil his plans tonight. And, O oh God, that the good seed of the word might find a resting place in each and every heart. Thank thee, Lord, for the child of God will never tire in hearing the gospel proclaimed. And, O oh God, thou canst teach us even through such a passage as this and such a verse. And so we just pray and commit this, the rest of the meeting into thy care, praying that thou would overrule, thou would undertake, give help in the pulpit, give help in the pew. And Lord, we pray that the Savior might be uplifted far above all. Solemnize our very hearts, Lord. Oh God, no doubt there are those things that maybe come to mind and what we have to do this week. But Lord, shut those things out. We pray, Lord, for a little time of being shut in with God. And Lord, that thou wilt strangely draw near. And I might, Lord, speak to her ear. And Lord, we thank thee as we've considered this morning, we worship a God who speaks to his people. And Lord, we pray we might hear thy voice even ministering unto our hearts this night. Oh, to that end, fill us with thy spirit and with power. Anoint us with fresh oil from above. Yea, Lord, cleanse us afresh that we might be that clean vessel fit for the Master's use. And Lord, that I might fill us and I might flow through us. And O oh God, that thou would give us words that must and shall prevail. For we pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen. The date was September 1857. The place was Corporation Square in Belfast. The occasion was an open-air service that Sunday afternoon conducted by the Reverend Hannah of Berry Street. And you might say to me, well, what you've said already is so unnoteworthy. Why do you bother? Well, that is until you realize that during the summer of that particular year, the authorities sought to forbid any open-air preaching to take place even in the streets of the towns and city. But the response from the Reverend Henry Cook summed it up. Allow them to stop our preaching in the streets and soon they will stop it in the churches. They rightly considered it to be not only a right of citizenship, but they also considered it to be something of their Christian duty. And gathered before the Reverend Hugh Hannah that Sabbath afternoon was a congregation of some 10,000 people. But there was also a small minority there. 
A small minority who were waiting and duly not long into the message were to launch an unprovoked attack. The people stood firm. And what looked more like a battlefield than a church service, open-air service. And because of their discipline, the enemy had to retreat. I bring this before you by way of introduction. Because the text that the Reverend Hugh Hannah announced that afternoon is the text that I want to bring to you this evening. And there was a whole inquiry, by the way, into that, following that time. And they didn't come out well, as sometimes is the case with the authorities. They were biased against the people of God. But of course, God sent the answer the following year, 1859. You see, men and women, there is a duty that is spoken about in these words. An account of all that the apostle has stated in terms of Christ being greater than the angels. And because God has given us his final word through his son, that's by the way what it means in the opening of chapter 1 of Hebrews. God at sundry times and in divers or diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Have in these last days, the last days are from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. He's spoken unto us by his Son. Then our duty, in light of all of that, is to take heed to the message of the gospel that we have heard. You see the words of verse 1 in chapter 2. Therefore, that's why, by the way, I read on into chapter 2. Forget about the little white space between the chapters. Therefore is the connecting word. Therefore, on account of what you've just read in chapter 1, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Do you see those words, let them slip? They're nowhere else found in the Scriptures. And the thought is of flowing besides, like waters that flow by a certain or a given place or given point. And the sense is that what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the word preached, if it is not heeded, then it will pass you by without doing you any good. The words of the Psalm 81 and verse 13 might be appropriate. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me and that Israel had walked in my ways. We are to take heed to the things which we have heard. Lest we would let them slip. And that certainly is all the more relevant when we consider a most solemn statement that Paul makes concerning this gospel. The gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel that has been confirmed by God with signs and wonders and miracles. The gospel that was preached by Christ in all his fullness. And was also followed up then by the apostles and the disciples who had walked with the Savior and who had heard him preach. And the gospel that the Old Testament prophets had done so by type and in shadow. A gospel which Paul reminds them is the only hope for the unsaved soul. For he says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That's the text that Hugh Hannah preached in that September afternoon, that's the text that I want to leave before you this evening. 
Won't you notice here the description on account of what the apostle has stated in chapter 1, there's to be given the most earnest heed and attention to the message of the gospel. And so as to enforce that, Paul proceeds to give a description of the gospel itself. Now, it's not a lengthy description, for he simply states, it's so great salvation. The adjective great there is not placed just to fill out a wee place in the verse. But it is included under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is included because it is speaking forth a great truth. I suggest the word great is used because it shows the sinner their greatest need. The greatest need that any person has is to have their sins dealt with, for it is their sins which will keep them out of an eternity with God in heaven. What is sin? The shorter catechism, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And God's salvation is great because it is able to save the sinner from the vilest of sins. The hymn writer got it right. The vilest offender who truly believes. That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. The sinner must come and realize a deep-dyed nature that their sin is before a thrice holy God. Sin by birth, sin, sin by nature, sin by practice. And each one who is redeemed by precious blood, each one who will one day enter into heaven, will confess that it is a great salvation that has brought them there. For much more, this salvation is great because it delivers from all sin. Have you ever broken God's law? That which we're looking at even this morning, and the rest that is found within the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stole? First John 1 and verse 7, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. No matter how gross or aggravated that sin might be, the adulterer, the murderer, the blasphemer may come and be saved. And that can only mean that God's salvation, which redeems such sinners from eternal ruin, is men and women, boys and girls, it's great. It was so with the Apostle Paul, the human penman of Hebrews. For you remember something of his background. He estimated, in his own estimation, he said, I am the chiefest of sinners. He was one who before the Lord saved him was a blasphemer. He was one who was a persecutor. He was an accessory to murder, the murder of Stephen. He was one who caused much havoc and injury to the church and to the cause of Christ on earth. Yet on that road to Damascus, just going on the way he was going to do more of the same, the salvation of God was able to reach down to such a vile, guilty sinner and transform him into being a new creature in Christ. You turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if the illustration of the Apostle Paul wouldn't be sufficient. Well, just look at these words. 1 Corinthians 6, he's writing again to this time, the believers in Corinth. Look at verse 9. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. I tell you, there's a 
a brave list of sins there, isn't there? Brave and black they are too. But I'm not stopping there because he goes on and he says, and such were some of you. That's just what you were. Corinth, of course, was a city known for all the vileness and sin of the day. Such were some of you. But he says, ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. So there was a people that knew what it was to be regenerated. They knew what it was to be set apart. They knew what it was to be justified by a holy God. That's a, a legal term. It's a judge saying to the one that's guilty in the dock, you're justified just as if you never sinned. And that's what they're experiencing in God's salvation. Men and women, it's a great salvation. But it is also so great because it speaks of a great Savior. It was so in my verse. It states the Lord who first spoke the word of salvation. That word not only went forth when Christ walked this earth, of course, for he preached as never man spake before. They marveled at his preaching. He spoke not as the Pharisees. He spoke with authority. But you remember also that his forerunner John the Baptist was to preach the same gospel as were the prophets of old. As was old Abraham the father of the faithful. Aye, and even Adam himself was to hear the message in the Garden of Eden. As the promise and the sacrifice of the seed of the woman was laid before him. None can compare anything to the greatness of the gospel because none can compare to the author and the finisher of salvation, even the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son and the Son of God. The gospel reveals a great Savior who was to leave the realms of glory behind to take upon himself the form of man and became the servant of men. What humility that was when we consider what Paul has already stated about Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. Did you miss it? He's superior to the angels in heaven. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. They are called to worship him. Again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. Oh, there's maybe a little prophetic note in that verse, in the second coming. He's the one who is expressly called God, verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, look at it, underline it, O God. He's the Son, but He's God. He's deity. He is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. He's the one who hath made all things, and He is eternal. Verse 10, Thy Lord in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens that are the works of thine hands. That's reminding us of John 1 and verse 1. And they shall perish. This whole world will perish one day, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old as doth a garment, as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Oh, this whole world will be wrapped up one day. But you see, the Lord is eternal. He remaineth the same, and the passing of years will not change him. You see, there's only... Savior, this is the only Savior of a lost mankind. And this is why we can term God's salvation as so great. 
It's aptly called so great salvation because of the great price that it was wrought out upon on Calvary's cross. This so great salvation was to mean the highest purchase. Even the giving of God's dear Son. Even the shedding of His own precious blood. For in obedience, He went to Calvary. And there to lay down His life in the place of guilty, hell-deserving sinners. On Calvary, He who knew no sin, yet became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The price has been paid. The work of God's salvation has been wrought. The gospel that we present to you this evening is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the message that is able to bring the vile, guilty sinner from the dunghill of life to set them among princes. One minute a wretch on the, on the way to hell, the next a joint heir with Christ, an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, with an inheritance that is incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it is fadeth not away, it's reserved in heaven for you, Peter says in his opening verses of his epistle. One moment clad in the filthy rags of self-righteousness, the next moment in the twinkling of an eye, as it were, clothed in the spotless righteousness of Christ, righteousness and accepted even through the Beloved, redeemed by His blood, knowing the forgiveness of sins. Now tell me, is that not so great salvation? Is that not, not a good description that God has purchased for us? Can I ask you, could you better it in any way? No matter what your response in the, to this evening uh, to the message of the gospel is, no matter if you would dare leave God's house trampling again underfoot the precious blood of Christ, counting it as an unholy thing, I want you to understand, men and women, that God's salvation is one which words fail adequately to describe. It is simply so great. That's how Paul describes it. So great. Have you experienced it? But not only the description, but there is also the danger. Because one look at our text, and we are well aware that it is the salvation of the soul that is in question here. But that being the case, there inherently is a great danger that every soul must be aware of. And that danger is that their soul could be lost. The Scriptures remind us the soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Men and women, there's one certain thing, and that is the fact that that soul of yours is eternal. It's immortal. It'll never die. Well, your body will, but your soul will never die. But the danger is that your soul could be lost in a Christless eternity. The danger is that you can leave this, this scene of time unprepared and you will not be where God is in the glories of heaven. Didn't the Lord even issue that warning to those whom he ministered unto? You see, we read in John chapter 8, in the words of verse 21, the Pharisees were there before him. And it says in that verse, Then Jesus said again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Whither I go, ye cannot come. They would die in their sin. They wouldn't be with Christ. 
and for those outside of the Savior, having no hope, having no peace over sins forgiven without God in this world, and they're heading to a lost eternity as we preach. They're the self-righteous person who's holding on to the fact that they did go to their church, they read their Bible, and maybe even said their prayers. There they shall be lost for all eternity. For you see, church attendance or self-righteousness never saved one soul. There's one thing I want you to get across to your heart this evening. It is the fact that you do not have to commit some great act of sin for your soul to be lost in hell forever. You'll know that the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church teaches that sin can be divided into two. There are the sins that they call as venial, and there are others that are called, called mortal. Most are found in the first category, and which the Roman Catholic has taught that those incur a temporary form of punishment, yet they have no bearing on whether a person goes to heaven or not. But so-called mortal sins are more serious. And if a person dies in that state, then they spend eternity in hell. And although that is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, a teaching men and women that has no scriptural foundation whatsoever, teaching which not only excuses and formalizes sin and misleads and deceives and deludes her people, yet I sometimes wonder, are there those of the Protestant persuasion who entertain something of a similar kind? That to go to hell you must be a wicked person. And to go to hell, you must have committed wicked acts of sin. We can think of some great sins as far as the thinking of this world might be concerned. Of the murderer who takes another's life. Of an adulterer who takes another's wife. Or a child abuser. Or those who practice witchcraft and false religion. Like old Jezebel in the Old Testament. But can I say, you don't need to practice sin like Jezebel to, in order for your soul to be lost. Or maybe there will be those who believe that they must openly and blatantly reject the gospel. We can maybe use the example of those in Noah's day, that preacher of righteousness. He preached for 120 years in the building of the ark. He, he warned of the coming judgment that was coming upon the earth uh, while he built that ark. And there it was, that very ark in which they could be saved. But alas, his preaching fell in deaf ears. For only his family obeyed the message and entered in. Is that what one has to do in order for their soul to be saved? We read that that same day the flood came. And they, all that were outside the ark, were destroyed. They openly rejected the message. Is that what you have to do in order for your soul to be lost? In order for your soul to be lost, what you have to do is just one thing. And it is found within the course of my text. What is it? All you have to do is neglect it. Neglect it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Just neglect. What's neglect mean? It simply means to make light of, to be careless about. Can I give you an illustration of it? Matthew 22. Turn to Matthew 22 in the words of verse 5. 
And here the Lord is teaching by parable the kingdom of heaven like unto that king that had the wedding feast for the son. The servants you'll see in verse 3 were bidden to go out and to welcome them in. Verse 4, again, he sent forth all their servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my ox and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it. And went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. But they made light of it. They neglected it. It's the same word. I just neglected it. A man who is in business doesn't need to commit forgery or robbery to ruin himself. He's only to neglect his business and his ruin will be certain. A man who's lying on a bed of sickness need not cut his throat to die. He has only got to neglect the means of remedy. And he will die. And so it is with your soul. Many of you have heard the message of God's salvation. All that you have done is made light of it. As you have walked out rejecting God's offer of mercy. Now listen to your loved one. This is your greatest danger. For all that you have to do to incur God's judgment and a lost sinner's eternity is just go on the way you're going. Do nothing. Just go on the way you're going. A sinner in your sin, neglecting God's salvation. Neglect what the preacher is telling you. Neglect God's Spirit, what He has shown you of your need to be saved from your sins. Neglect the Christ of Calvary, the only Savior and the only remedy of your sin. For your sin. Just neglect it. I'm sure some of you have heard of the name of R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey was an American evangelist. One day, a little card was handed to him on the one side. The question was asked, What must I do to be saved? The answer, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The other side it said, What must I do to be lost? The answer, Nothing. Nothing. That's why this is a great danger, dear friend, for many. Not only in this house, but in other churches as well. Many, Sabbath by Sabbath, day by day, are doing nothing about their soul and about their eternal stature and well-being before the Lord. And they're in danger of being lost forever. Just neglecting. So great salvation. It leads me to show you the damnation. I trust that by now the severity of this text is already impressed in your heart. How shall we escape? Paul asks. If we neglect so great salvation. Should the unconverted man, woman, young person go on their way, they're going. Then the lake of fire looms large at the end of the journey. I, for those who have just neglected the salvation of their soul, have just went on and on. The broad road 
leadeth to destruction, you see. And from that place, in the words of our text, as Paul brings out, there is no escape. That is so, for if you neglect Christ and the message of God's salvation, then I remind you there's no other way. There's no other means of salvation. There's only one offering for sacrifice for sin forever that has been made. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's salvation through the glorious person and finished work of the Savior on the cross of Calvary for a sinner like you and a sinner like me or else there's no salvation at all. There's no other work of atonement that can be made. Acts 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men, whereby we must be saved. The Lord paid the price for sin in his own body on that tree. We read that he died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He incurred the wrath of God's anger against sin, that all that call upon him might escape it. He paid the punishment for hell so that we'd never be there. He died so that we'd never die eternally. He rose again the third day so that we might escape the bands of the grave. He ascended into glory. He has gone before as the captain of our salvation that we might follow on one day. But not like Christ, not like God's way of salvation, and there's no escape. Your soul shall be damned. And can I also say that there will be no escape for you. For you have no just reason. No just argument as to why you should reject God's so great salvation. There's no just reason. Indeed, the invitation of the Lord goes out to your heart in the words of the prophet Isaiah. For he says in Isaiah 1 and 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You have no just reason to neglect such an offer of God's mercy. No reason or argument. But should you neglect God's so great salvation, then there's every reason. And there's every argument why your soul shall be damned and that for all eternity. Because that's what every one of us deserve. Our sin deserves the deepest part of hell. Men and women, we cannot do anything of ourselves. And yet God in mercy, in the invitation of the gospel, is yet at extending unto your heart and unto your soul, that you might come, that you might taste and see that the Lord is good. And so you've been given opportunity after opportunity, time after time. There's no just cause or reason why you should neglect that invitation, but you've done so. And dear loved one, there will be no escape from the wrath of God being poured out upon you. For if you neglect Christ and the message of God's saving grace, what fearful words they are. No escape. When you turn to Revelation chapter 14, just in closing, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10. That brings us, as it were, to get a little glimpse of this. Of what it will be like for a soul to be lost. 
The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. What's hell? Hell is a place where God has forgotten to be merciful. It's where the wrath of God will be poured out continually. Unjustly for sin. And that wrath of God poured out is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. We touched on that a little just a few weeks back. It's not watered down. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whoso receiveth the mark of his name. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. There's no ending. There's no escape. It's forever and ever. And so I do none else than point you, as the Scriptures do, as the Spirit of God does, to the place of deliverance for the soul. I point you alone to the cross of Calvary, to the Lamb of God, for there alone is to be found God's so great salvation, and there alone is to be found your only escape from the judgment against sin that is to come. Flee to Christ! If you haven't already done so, come by faith. Come now and be saved. For how shall we escape? if we neglect so great salvation. And the Lord has saved you tonight. Then rejoice in what God has done for you. Rejoice in the grace of God that has lifted you up from your marry sin and clay in which you were found and he has placed your feet on the rock, Christ Jesus. You have known pardon from sin. You have known deliverance. You will never know the flames of an eternal hell. But instead the glories of heaven And you can say, yes, preacher, it is so great salvation. For I, an unworthy and undeserving sinner of it. But if you're not saved, come tonight and seek the Lord while you may be found. May God help you to do so for his own name's sake. May the Lord bless his word. Each and every heart. 256 will sing in closing. Where will you spend eternity? The question comes to you and me. Tell me what shall your answer be? Where will you spend eternity? It's a solemn question. It's a solemn hymn. 279 is the page number. Let's stand to sing at 256.
Father God and our Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank the Lord for this challenge of the Apostle Paul. How shall we escape so great salvation? How shall we neglect, escape if we neglect so great salvation? And O oh God, how solemn even the words will be in singing lost throughout all eternity. And pray, Lord, that Thou would give us a burden for those that are yet in their sin, greater burden. That, Lord, that they might be reached with the gospel, whether it be the child, young person, or older alike. And, Lord, that they might be able to testify, no, not lost throughout all eternity, but saved throughout all eternity. O oh God, speak on when the preacher's voice is silent. Part us with thy blessing. Keep thy good hand upon us. Lord, we pray that the tide of blessing might rise. Thy name will be honored and glorified. We pray in our Savior's precious name. Amen.